All right, good morning. We are uh, journeying our way through the uh, book of Hebrews here, finishing up chapter 11. We're almost done with the book here. Uh, working our way through, we are continuing our series on uh, the topic of what is faith. And I've uh, been looking through those. If you've uh, missed part of that series or if this is uh, your first Sunday, uh, the, all that is available online. You can kind of uh, follow along as we've been looking at kind of what is, what is faith and, and what does it look like. And so uh, let me pray for us as we uh, get started. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Hebrews. Uh, thank you, God, that uh, as we think about our faith and our relationship with you, that, Lord, you give us not only instruction, um, but, God, you give us examples. You give us um, uh, examples to look at, to follow, to see, uh, and ultimately you give us the personal work of Jesus himself, um, that God not only shows us but provides for us the power that we need, God, to trust you on a day-to-day basis based on what he's done for us uh, by going to the cross and dying for our sin and rising again. We pray, God, as we uh, study this, this section together that you would guide us and lead us through this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we uh, conclude our study on the topic of faith in Hebrews 11. Uh, It's been important uh, that we take our time as we kind of work our way through uh, this section together um, because faith is at the very center of Christianity, right? Faith is at the very center of it. Uh, We think about faith, it's faith that puts us into a relationship with God. It's faith uh, that brings about the forgiveness of our sins. It is faith uh, that makes us become more and more like Jesus. It's faith that produces lives of mercy and love and compassion. It's faith that gives us hope in the light of tragedies, and it's faith that causes us to cling to the fact that justice will be ultimately served by none other than God himself, right? It's faith that is all of those aspects. That's why it's so important. And the reason for us personally why faith is so important for us today is because faith kind of helps blow away the fog of confusion. It helps uh, give us a rock to stand on, and faith helps us move ahead in boldness and confidence in the love of God for us and for this world, right? So faith is at the very foundation uh, of our lives as, as Christians. So today we're going to finish up looking at faith, and yes, we're going to look at more, fi- our final couple of R's that we'll go through here. Uh, today we'll look at faith involves rejoicing, faith re- involves a reality, recognition, and resurrection, all right? So let's begin by looking at the first one. Faith involves rejoicing here in verse 32. Uh, we begin to see a list of names. Uh, the writer starts kind of listing them off one by one, and in some ways taking for granted that the readers, you know, notice the name of the book is Hebrews, right? Hebrews, so uh, these people are familiar with the stories of each of these characters, and so he just kind of lists them off and, um, and kind of takes for granted that they, they understand that. And while we may not be as familiar, we do have a Bible, and we have an Old Testament uh, that does tell us stories about them so we can understand them. And we'll find that each one of them, as he lists them off, each one of them tells us some very specific things about faith. Faith can produce victories. It can bring conquests and deliverance and rejoicing over the enemy. In every case, uh, the, listed, the people who are listed here were, were helped by God or rescued from danger or, 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 through, uh, or, or from death by acts of faith, right? So each one of them has some victorious kind of element that took place in their life. And so let's look at each, each one of those as we go through there. And you could say that what, what we learn is that faith involves the miraculous here, we're going to find, right? Whether it be God breaking the laws of nature when we think about miracles, or would that be God uh, working through behind the scenes, making someone strong through weakness. All these involves extraordinary acts 
that make the Old Testament exciting to read. Right? That's what we love about these stories and reading these great conquests and the things that God did through these individuals. And the other part that's so exciting and really applicable to us is that as we look at each of these characters, uh, we find that in their life they were very broken, flawed, sinful people. Right? I mean, you may have listed, heard some of these names listed, and you're like going, how did they end up in this chapter? I mean, all I know about them is brokenness and flaws and sin, and yet God listed them here. Because what is important and why they're listed here is that God used them despite them. God used what little bit of faith they had at moments in their life to do great things in and through them. And that same God lives today and can do the same thing. Let's look at the first one here. The first one here is, we see listed is a guy named Gideon. Gideon. Now, Gideon uh, struggled uh, to trust God at first. Uh, as a matter of fact, when we first find him, and we're reading the book of Judges, we find him hiding out in a wine vat. Uh, he's, a, he's afraid and scared of the, the Midianites. When God approaches him and says, O mighty man of valor, which I always think is funny. Like, he's hiding, he's scared to death, and God approaches him, and I'm sure he's like, who are you talking about? <laughs> oh, mighty man of, he's like hiding, scared to death, right? And then God tells him, look, I want you to lead an army, and I want you to go defeat those Midianites. And, uh, and of course, if you know the story, he panics, and he says, you know, I can't do that. I, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not equipped to do that. And God goes, you know what, I'll be with you. Yes, you can. And what does Gideon do? Maybe you're familiar with the story of Gideon here. He says, look, uh, I won't do it unless you make this fleece or this rug or whatever this is, this carpet type thing, until you make it wet overnight and keep the ground around it dry. And so what does God do? God does it, right? Everything comes out in the morning, it's wet, everything else is, is, uh, is dry. And Gideon does some, basically says, you know what? Oh, well, that was a good try. That was maybe a lucky try. Can you do it again? <laughs> I mean, it's a crazy story. You read it and God goes, okay, and God, God does it again. And so Gideon goes, okay, I think I can do this now. So he gets his army of 32,000 you know, soldiers together. Um, they stop by kind of a river to get, get something to drink. They all kneel down, and God has them dwindle them down, that army down to about 300. All right, 300. And these weren't Spartans, okay? This was 300 guys, and they're, they're equipped, as we find the story, with jars and trumpets. Um, and they go out and defeat an entire Midian army, right? And that was kind of the story of Gideon. And then we find uh, Barak here. Um, or, or maybe call him Barack, but it's not Barack as an Obama, but Barak. And uh, during his time, uh, we have another uh, out, army outside of uh, Israel, the Canaanites, who have taken over Israel. And we find a lady, a godly lady in that, in that time named Deborah, who had kind of had enough of the Canaanites kind of taking over the, the people. So she looks around. She basically tells, uh, tells Barak here to be a man and, uh, and lead the people of Israel to freedom, right? He says, come on, you can do this. And uh, he basically says, how about we follow you? That's kind of what he says. And uh, she rebukes him, kind of drags him, you know, into battle. And even after, after, they, after they had won and the king of Philistines was on the run, she has to tell him, like, go get him, you know. And so Barak's like, okay, I guess I will. And he, he, he kind of doesn't do it, you know. And then we have this other gal shows up named J.L. or J.L. And uh, she goes and gets him. If you're familiar, I mean, this, this is the book of Judges we're talking about here. This is fascinating. And um, so this gal goes and chases down the king. She gets him. Uh, he wouldn't do it. And uh, she sneaks up into his tent. Uh, she gives him a glass. And the text says, quote, she took a tent peg and a hammer and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground. And so he died. I bet he did. I bet he did die. Um, she goes and finds Barak, uh, who was apparently, I don't know what he was doing, twiddling his thumbs or whatever he was, shows him the dead king. Deborah starts singing a song about it, and Barak accompanies her, probably singing soprano or something. Um, 
Some of you got that. But that's very, I mean, so you start reading these guys, you're going like, well, I have hope, right? I, 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 I can make this hall of faith. Then there's Samson, all right? It keeps going. Samson was immoral, vengeful, and selfish. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, the story begins with him, not so, not so good here. He's, basically, the story begins with Samson. He saw a girl he thought looked good, who was a Philistine. He goes to his mom and dad, and he goes, hey, I want her, get her for me. To which the dad says, but son, you know, she's a Philistine, we can't do that. And he goes, I don't care, get her for me now, right? This is, this is Samson, this is what we get to understand him as. Then we find him over and over again throughout the book doing things he's not supposed to be doing when all of a sudden the Holy Spirit of God would come upon him, he'd straighten up, get his act together, and then God would use him to destroy some Philistines that were holding the people of Israel captive. Um, this guy at one point uses a jawbone of a donkey to, to kill a thousand. Uh, he gets thirsty, God causes water just like basically come out of the ground. He's held captive uh, when he... <laughs> This is a great story. He's held captive at one time, decides to rip off the city gate, which is about a ton, carry it over his head for 40 miles up a mountain and throw it down, and subsequently start the first CrossFit program. <laughs> if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's not in there, by the way. That was extra. But yeah, you imagine, I mean, that's like, you're talking about flipping over tires. I mean, this guy's carried a, a ton over his head for 40 miles up a mountain. At the end of his life, he's in the Colosseum. He's full of Philistines there. They blinded him, make a mockery of him. He reaches out, grabs the columns, pulls it all down, destroys the whole group of people along with himself in the story. That's Samson. Jephthah. Uh, Jephthah, uh, his story is, if you go see his background, he was a son um, of a prostitute. He had, no one wanted him. Uh, he was kicked out of his house as a, basically a teenager, lived out in the street, joined a group of Guys, we would say today maybe a gang or something that wasn't very good. Uh, God redeems his life, uses him to overthrow the Amorites. There's another group of people that had taken Israel captive. Uh, but then he has his only child, which is probably the saddest part of the entire story in the, in the book of Judges, has his only child killed over a rash vow that he took. All four of these men lived during the time where Judges says this, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Okay, so let's understand that. They were many times the only ones in their entire generation who really did anything for God or had any faith in God, and yet they were seriously flawed and seriously broken and sinful. And yet God used that, what little bit of faith they had, what little bit of trust they had, God used that to do great things. And then the list starts, starts going a little bit, maybe familiar, going like, now I understand why these people are in there. David is another guy, we discover him. In the Old Testament, as his story goes, he was kind of the runt of the family. He's out tending sheep. God calls him to be king. He united the nation of Israel together. And with his son, son Solomon, kind of brought Israel to its greatest kind of pinnacle or point uh, in its history. He defeated Goliath. You may be familiar with that story. Uh, spared King's, uh, King Saul's life on numerous occasions. Um, one while Saul was using the porta potty, but that's another story. Um, there was no porta potty, but it was something like that. And he uh, he conquered kingdoms, right? It was great. It was great stuff. Great stories. Yet, as we also read the story of David, he was a murderer. He was a liar, an adulterer, and an instigator of the deaths of of uh, hundreds of people because of a foolish census that he took. Right? He was also broken and sinful. And then there was Samuel. We see here as well another guy listed. Uh, Samuel was known as a prayer warrior. Uh, he was uh, full of wisdom. He brought the stability to the nation, um, kind of went against his culture of the day, and really kind of led the way for people following God. And yet when we first find him, he's given up basically for adoption uh, as a young, young boy. Uh, his mom visited him once a year. He has stepbrothers into his family, basically, where he's adopted. Um, they, were, uh, they were wicked stepbrothers, which no doubt made life hard for him. 
And towards the end of his life, his own sons rebelled against everything that he had taught, right? So he had a hard, hard time as well. And then we have references to Daniel and his three friends. It doesn't list them, but we understand the story here. They stopped the mouths of lions, if you're familiar with that story. They quenched the power of fire. There were men like Elijah and Elisha who escaped the edge of the sword. Um, and then Elijah, of course, if you're familiar with him, in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, ran out to the wilderness, scared to death of Jezebel, you know, gets depressed, gets struggles, wants to die. But God strengthens him and made him strong through weakness. That's that part we see there in Hebrews 11 is referring to probably Elijah. And then we have references now. This gets interesting because the writer starts referencing things that if you're, you're reading them, you're going like, I don't remember that story in the Old Testament. I've read it quite a few times, don't, don't see that. That's because he starts referencing historical things that took place during the period between, if you know the Old Testament, there's a guy named uh, Malachi, the Italian prophet. I always like saying that. Uh, no, it's Malachi. That's how you say it. Um, I'll be back tonight. No, um, there's Malachi and Matthew, right? And between Malachi and Matthew is, a, as we call the 400 silent years. It's the years where there's really no prophets and there's no, nothing being spoken or written down. Um, there is history taking place. There are real events taking place, but there are not books of the Bible. Now, you may be familiar with some things. They, the Catholicism actually says that there are books of the Bible during that time, and they call that the Apographa. Now, we don't believe that those are books of the Bible. If you want to know more about that, I can talk to you about that later. I'm not going to dig into that right now. But the writer is referencing some stories that you should be familiar with that took place during those 400 silent years. It's also called uh, the Maccabean period. So around 200 A.D., something like that, they put foreign armies to flight. So one, one possible, there's a couple stories here that may be familiar with what the writer is referring to, which the people of Israel would have understood. One was a, um, where the Israel was attacked by a foreign army, and a widow, um, she kind of leaves, leaves the army, goes out you know, outside the walls where they're being you know, kind of under siege, she goes out, she kind of puts a dress on, she, she goes out there and does her makeup, as it were, and she goes outside the city gate to this foreign king, kind of seduces him, convinces him that she's on his side, and she kind of leads him into a trap, basically, um, and while he is sleeping at night, uh, she, she actually has him killed, and uh, she, you know, she, she has him killed, brings him into the, to the nation, and they, they all celebrate that they have been put for this army then took off, right, so took this Putting this foreign army to flight is what the text says. Another possible uh, situation where the foreign armies were, to, were put to flight was a guy named um, Matathus. Matathus was during, uh, he was there during the reign. He may be, and again, I'm giving you a lot of history here. You may be familiar, may not be. There was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Greek um, uh, king. He was uh, very much a wanting to uh, consider himself a missionary of Greek culture. He wanted everybody to become Greek. Or he, it was called Hellenization, where he kind of made everybody be, try to become Greek. He took over Israel, wanted them to, to vacate everything they knew about Judaism or, or the scriptures or any part, and completely adopt the Greek culture. So he tried to enforce that. He killed close to 80,000 uh, Jewish people. He sold another 10,000 into captivity. As the story goes, he, he sacked the temple. He took everything of value out of it. He offered a pig on the altar. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, that is um, obviously a blasphemy to do that. Offered a pig on an unclean animal on the altar. He even turned the temple itself into a brothel. So the, to force Greek culture on them, he, con- he, he said no one could be circumcised and no one could have any part of the scriptures. He tried to burn them all, get rid of them all. Um, and this is all taking place about 200 years before the Gospel of Matthew begins. And so he forced the people to eat unclean meat. He forced them to sacrifice to the Greek gods. 
And then a soldier grabs this guy named Metathus, and they bring him up with his sons, and are like going to tell him, and he, he tells him, forces him to offer a sacrifice to the Greek gods. He resists when another Jewish man comes around and goes, well, I'll offer it for him. Um, and when he begins to do that, Metathus wrestled the sword from one of the guards, uh, one of the Greek guards, slew his apostate countrymen, and then threw the sword over to another soldier and began to attack the other guards. And together with this guy named Judas Maccabeus, they put the foreign armies to flight. They actually made the Greeks take off running away from the nation of Israel during that time period. These were all the stories that were referenced. There's another one here of a woman who received their dead sons back to life. Um, Probably that's a story maybe in the Old Testament of the widow with Elijah or the Shumanite woman with Elisha. Each of these people had serious flaws, right? And if we had time to examine each of them closely, you would see that. Uh, they, were, they were still, you know, as the, as the Puritan said, the best of men are men at best. But what mattered is that God took what little faith they had and used it to both glorify himself and rescue his people. So God did great and mighty things uh, through their very small amounts of faith. They prevailed by faith and experienced great joy as a result. And so we need to read these stories. We need to know these kinds of stories and see how God can use people of flesh and bone like ourselves, right? God can do great and wonderful things through people today, just like he did back then. And so the same God is alive today. We need to hear that faith does produce great, great amounts of rejoicing, right? And celebration of God using. And many of you could stand up here and you could give testimony of God using you in ways you never imagined or never deserved, right? That, that's fantastic. That's wonderful. That's the first part. And we need to hear that. But, number two, <laughs> faith also involves, I'll call it reality here. Reality. This is what I kind of love about the Bible. It's very, um, very honest. It doesn't sugarcoat life. Uh, the Bible understands what real life is like and what difficulty comes as a result of that. And so we're going to find uh, that the reality is that, that our, li- our real lives of faith don't always produce rejoicing. Am I right? <laughs> it doesn't always produce happiness. It doesn't always produce victories. And like, yes, this, everything's going just great and everything's going the way I want it to go, right? Sometimes, sometimes faith produces suffering. We don't like that part, but that's reality, right? So look at the text, verse 36. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment, stones, sawn in two, killed with the sword, on and on it goes. Do you note the difference between these people of faith and those we just listed before, right? It's a pretty big difference in these two groups of people. The previous section refers to, we would say, maybe triumphant heroes, those who got vindication on earth, the ones we love to read about in the Old Testament, those who looked like they were dead, but they came out alive, right? Those who had weeping turned to rejoicing, and we love those stories. And while this section that we're reading now refers to maybe we would call them the suffering heroes, those who didn't get vindication on earth, whose weeping turned into more weeping, we love the first section of victory from ashes and how God did great and mighty things, but this section, eh, we'd rather just ignore that part. Right? I don't want to hear that part. Uh, but that's reality, right? That, that's what the writer's going to. So look at the contrast closely here. There's a, a clear contrast he's making. We have in verse 34, those who escaped the edge of the sword. But then in verse 37, you'll look down, you'll see that those, those who were put to death with the sword. So we have some who escaped from the sword and those who were put to death with the sword. So in one instance, by faith, they escaped the edge of the sword. In the other instance, by faith, they died by the sword. 
You think about the scriptures. Think about Acts chapter 12. We see Peter delivered from death. You may be familiar with that story, right? He's delivered from the prison. Angels come and rescue him. It's, it's great and it's awesome. Well, right in the same chapter 12, we, we see James, who is killed, right? He's delivered over to death. He was an apostle too. One escaped death by faith. One died by faith. The church prayed for Peter, and he was released. The followers of John the Baptist prayed for him, and he was beheaded, right? I mean, this list that the writer gives us is pretty gruesome. Some, some it says, in the, even the, the original language, which in the, in the book of Hebrews, New Testament is written in the Greek. And so the original language, the word tortured, is the word, temp, let me try to pronounce this right, timpanzio, timpanzio. And it's the word we get our English word timpani, or a kettle drum. And the idea here is that it's a picture of someone being stretched, like over top of a drum, right, and being beat with a hammer, like until they die. That's the idea. They would be stretched is the image of the word tortured. We have references here probably to Jeremiah, who was flogged and imprisoned. There are references here probably to Zechariah, who was stoned to death. Another reference is pretty clear here is the one of Isaiah. Isaiah was denounced by King Manasseh, hid in a cedar tree. When Manasseh saw him, found him, he sawed the tree in two with Isaiah still in the middle of it. Even during the Maccabean era again, if a man was found possessing the scriptures, the king would crucify him, and then he would take his wife and children and hang them on nooses on the very crosses where the husband and father had died. I mean, that's how brutal and graphic it was back then. As a result, many of the Jewish people wandered out into deserts. That's what the text is telling us, right? They wandered out into deserts. Uh, they, they went into caves to escape, and that's exactly what the text is telling us they did. All these people, instead of having their foes delivered over to them, were delivered to their foes by faith. God gave power through faith to see some of his people through suffering and not escape suffering. Sometimes it is God's will. Listen to me carefully. Sometimes it is God's will that you struggle. Sometimes it's God's will that you conquer. God can and does do miracles and acts of providence to relieve his people and deliver them But it doesn't always do that. And often it takes more faith, more courage to hold on than to fight on, right? Just to cling and just hang on. And we need to hear this. And here's why this is important. If your idea of faith is how you define faith, how you define a relationship with God, Christianity, how you define faith, if it ends, if your definition ends in verse 35, then you're wrecked. You're wrecked because, because you will always be thinking this. You'll always, think, you'll always be thinking, you know what? It's going to turn out fine. You know, it's all going to go away. I mean, it, my definition of God is that the cancer is going to miraculously is going to disappear. The job is going to turn out great. The kids are going to love the Lord. That's what's going to happen because that's my definition of faith. But that's not necessarily God's definition here. It might not happen. The life of faith involves suffering, hardships, and a lot of questions. No, look down at, uh, in your Bible there, chapter 12, verse 1. You'll find that God describes our life of faith as a race. You see that? You know, that the life of it kind of describes it as a race that we're running. It's important. It's important. for I, I ran last November my first and last marathon. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever done this before, but the last couple of miles is like someone's taking a ball-peen hammer and beating you in the chest and your legs, right? It's just like excruciating pain. I don't know why we do this to ourselves, but... It was my last one. Anyway, it, it was literally agony is what it was. It was agony to run, especially like the last six, eight, I don't know, last 12. All 26 was agony, actually. But it was agony. And here, here's the interesting part in the Greek. The Greek word for race, you know what the Greek word is? Agonizomai. 
That's what it is. That's, a, that's the word for race. Our life is, a, is agonizomai. That's what he says. It's, it is a life of agony as we run. It is painful, and there's hardships, and you want to quit. That is a, I love that about the Bible, because that's reality, right? We live in that. And even the word for witnesses, it says here in, in Hebrews 12, the witnesses that are around, like watching, the word for that is where you get our English word martyr from. <laughs> They're all martyrs standing on the sidelines watching. He says, he says, we got this crowd of witnesses whose examples tell us to keep going. Keep running. That's the main verb. Keep running. They're screaming at us, right? And here's what, here's what they're saying. They're on the sidelines. They're martyrs, and they're screaming. You know what? It's worth it. It's worth living a life of faith. And listen, as they're standing there, they're not dressed in their Sunday best. Many of them who are standing on the sidelines cheering us on as we run this agonizomai, run this race of agony, these people, they have puncture wounds. They have, the others have their heads in their hands. Isaiah standing there sawn in two. I mean, this is the witnesses standing next to us. And they're all there, and they're all saying, Jesus is worth it. He, keep going. He is, we promise you, he is worth it. We've ran it. We finished it. It was hard. We suffered, but it was worth it. And, and, and then they're all telling us what the Hebrews 12 tells us. They, to throw off the unnecessary junk that's slowing you down. Cut off the sins that are distracting you and run. Run for Jesus. Run towards Jesus. Right? Get rid of the weights, it says. Listen, some of, some of you have things in your life that aren't, they aren't, nece- maybe they aren't necessarily sins, but they are things that are just slowing you down from going hard after Jesus and loving other people. It's just slowing you down. You look at your life and you ask the wrong questions. You look, at, you look at how you spend your time, and you go, what's, what's wrong with this, right? What's wrong with that? It's not, it's not sin, right? But instead, you should be asking, is, is what I'm spending my time on getting, me, getting in the way of greater faith and greater love for others and greater pursuit of Jesus? Is it, is it stuff that is slowing me down, distracting me from my main goal, my main purpose of running this race? That's the question we should be asking, and so these martyrs, these witnesses, they're yelling at us that our throats are raw, right? They're yelling at us to keep running, throw off the hindrances, cut off the sins, and run. And they are witnesses not only, not only to, that it can be done, but that it's going to be hard. <laughs> That's what they're witnesses for. They're all telling us, hey, it's hard. Oh, we know. Trust us. They're holding their head, head in their hands. Yeah, it's difficult. Keep going. Um, they teach us that suffering is not just part of our life, but it is a necessary part of our life. And now, you go like, Chris, what do you mean it's necessary? Well, it, it was this kind of faith that suffers that put the scriptures into our hands, right? It's this kind of faith that suffers that passes the word of the gospel on from generations to generations that how we have it today. God uses suffering to advance his work in the world in our hearts. He speaks through that. I love how C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world, right? He's trying to get us to wake up. And the reason this suffering is not in vain, the reason that these people could run the agonizing race and finish it well was because their faith, get this now, their faith was in God, not their agenda for God. I'm going to say that next week too. We're going to bring that up again. Their faith was in God, not their agenda for God. You, know, you, you can have your life scripted out. And you're like, this is what I want, God. This is how I like, think life should go. And then God almost never follows your script, right? <laughs> it's like never, never quite follows the, what you've written up. And you have a choice to make. Are you going to trust God or are you going to trust the agenda or the script you've written for your life? Are you going to trust your agenda for God or God himself? 
You hear this all the time. People say, you know what? I trusted God so much. I prayed and I prayed and I trusted and he didn't come through. Have you said that? Have you heard that before? I'm going to be blunt with you. You didn't trust God. You didn't trust God. You trusted, you had an agenda. You wanted God to meet that agenda and he didn't meet that agenda. So you blamed God for it and said, well, it's God's fault. He didn't come through. God doesn't always follow your agenda, right? The writer is challenging us to trust God and not the agenda we have for God. The world is not going to conform to your agenda, and God is not going to conform to it either. Faith involves the reality of suffering, so run and keep going, right? Number three, faith involves recognition. Now, if you look down at verse Hebrews eleven thirty nine through 40, it says this, All these, though commended through faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should be not, not be made perfect. So despite all the great triumphs, and despite all the great suffering, all these people had two things in common. They all died first. And number two, they all had faith in God despite the circumstances. And you know what they got as a result, it says here? They got, they got recognition. They got approval from who? God. Right? Uh, the word commended is where we get the, is, is the, is the, uh, the idea that they were pleasing in God's sight. See, how is that? Because they looked, Hebrews 12 says, to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of their faith. And the result, God valued them even though the world did not value them. He recognized them even though the world did not recognize them as worthy. And that's worth living for, right? That, that's, that's the beauty. That's, that's worth dying for. That's the whole point of the passage, as we say in there. Do you realize that if you are in Christ today, I was thinking about this this morning. So if you're in Christ today, then God doesn't, God doesn't have any adjectives attached to your name as his child. You're, you're, not, you're not a good child or the bad child or the failing child, the successful child, the weak child, the strong child. My friends, if you're in Christ, you are a child of God, period. That's how he sees you. That's what he's talking about here. Despite all of their ups and downs and failures and successes, and they cling to God and they failed to trust, they trusted, didn't trust, at the end of the day, they were a child of God, and that's why God commended them. It was through simple faith in God, and that's worth living and dying for. This was so real to them, the approval and recognition of God, that they did radical things for God. They took great risks for God. They defied the orders of the king to worship another god. They refused to allow injustice to run rampant. They spoke the gospel despite little to no reception like Jeremiah. They all died in faith, believing that all God really wanted from them was just for them to trust him. Can we just boil Christianity down to really something really simple? The whole Bible has one message. God is saying one thing. Trust me. Just, just trust me. <laughs> Isn't that the daily battle, the fight of faith that Paul talks about? I need, okay, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to believe what you said. Though my circumstances and though people around me are telling me differently, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow what it says. No matter what comes my way, I'm going to trust you. That's the battle. As a matter of fact, the writer says something fascinating here. He says that, that his children, notice this in the text there, that his children, are ba- they're, they're his gifts to a lost and dying world. Many things in this life are utterly opposite of the way they seem, and this is kind of one of them. When the children of God are permitted to suffer by God's will and be rejected and mistreated and go destitute and afflicted, as the text says, God is basically giving a gift to the world. He is gracing the world. He is shedding his love abroad in the world because of those who suffer and die. There is this unshakable assurance of hope in God, and the world is given a message. The world is given a message through God's suffering people. You know what that message is? 
Jesus is better than this life. And they hear it loud and clear. You can have a nice, comfortable life, and you can talk about Jesus all you want. And people are like, well, that's fine. Life's good for you. And when life goes hard and things get difficult and you still cling to God in hope and faith, all of a sudden people start listening, don't they? Right? They start listening. They're like, okay, well, this means something, I guess. And that's what the writer's saying. It is a gift to the world that we are able to give when we suffer and we still trust God through that suffering. You say, where do you get that from? Isn't that what it means in verse 38? Of whom the world is not worthy. What a beautiful phrase. It means they were a gift to the world. (laughs) The world does not deserve them. The world was not worthy of these men and women, but they were pleasing to God. The world doesn't value what he values. The world didn't recognize them, but he did. You as a Christian in suffering are a gift to this world. And when you love Jesus and proclaim the gospel through all of that, you're a gift to the world. You know, the writer says even more here. It says even more about what God is doing, is going to do, because of our faith in him. And it's a little bit, the last sentence of Hebrews 11 can be a little confusing, so let me try to explain that to you. Basically, what he's saying is that God is going to make a global introduction of both uh, the saints in the Old Testament, the saints in the New Testament, and us. It's going to be a spectacular introduction. I mean, it's going to be better than phantasmic, you know. Um, That's for you Disney fans out there. And, and proof of his approval of his people, right? And he's awaiting to make us all perfect until he returns. Like, what is he talking about? What does it mean that apart from us, they should not be made perfect? What does that mean? That means that those who have died before us are awaiting something. What are they awaiting? They're awaiting the resurrected bodies, right? They're, they're awaiting the resurrected bodies. Revelation, the book of Revelation, even shows us that there are martyrs there and people who have died, and they're asking Jesus, how long, O Lord, to your return? When are you going to go back? When are you going to make things right, bring justice, and we get our bodies back? And so the doctrine of the resurrection teaches us that God is awaiting for the last of his elect to come into the fold, and then, he, when he, then he'll return with his saints and gather all who are here on earth all together in one glorious, shining, spectacular resurrection of our bodies and put God's uh, glory on display. It's God's way of saying, you know what, I love you. Here's your body back. Here's a glorified new earth. That's what the Revelation talks about. Glorified new earth to live on. All of your enemies are removed. Sickness and pain are gone. Righteousness is holding court, and the glory of God fills every nook and cranny of this entire place. Enjoy it. That's God's gift. This is faith's reward, right? This is what it means, the approval and recognition of God. And this event is yet to come. It's yet to come. In the meantime, the image here, as we look at chapter 12, is that those who have lived by faith crowd the marathon route and to urge us on. Uh, they know that, uh, that when we all finish the race, when it's all said and done, and we all finish, the party will begin. That's what they're talking about. We will all be made perfect in that we'll all get our bodies back. And get this, it's not just they who are cheering us on. It's not just they who are bearing witness that it's worth it and keep going. Even the creation itself, the, the creation that God has made, even today is groaning and longing for that day. When the resurrection will happen. The future resurrection will happen. Listen to this. Romans 8, 18-23. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. You say, what's this glory? For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, getting our bodies back. That's the future of the resurrection. Listen, for each of those lying the marathon route, sometimes they had earthly victories. Sometimes they did not. Sometimes their faith saved them from death. Sometimes their faith brought death. But it didn't matter. It, doesn't, it didn't matter what the, what the result was. They knew that God had provided something better. And we're so much closer than they were to that something better, to that future new heavens, new earth, glorified bodies. Consummation of history. Lastly, number four. Faith involves resurrection. Okay, we'll just continue that thought. The last, uh, those first couple of verses of Hebrews 12, look at verse 2 there. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is, this is the power of faith. Death can't stop us because there is a resurrection, not just of ourselves in the future, but of the resurrection of Jesus himself. Uh, don't you see the emphasis here in the text is on the fact that Jesus finished the race. Notice, he finished the race, and what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the Father. In other words, what happened? He rose again. Right? That happened. He didn't just die and go on the ground. He rose again. And the writer is telling us that if we're going to run this race of the Christian life, we're going to keep enduring. We're not going to have the power to keep doing it just by watching the example of others or even, get this, even watching the example of Jesus. That's not going to empower us to keep going. I mean, his example may inspire us for a time, but it brings, there's no power in that. What brings the power is when we look up and we see that Jesus finished the race. He completed things. He conquered death. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. And to be the founder and perfecter is the one who, did, get this, who didn't just finish the race. You remember maybe way back in Hebrews 2 when we started this series, we talked about that word founder. The word founder, is, is, it means he threw us on his back. It's like we all just like pulled a hammy out there on the, on, the, on, the, on the race. And we can't finish it. And Jesus threw us all on his back, and he finished the race with us on his back. He, he finished it for us, is the idea. And so Jesus on the cross had us with him. We went into the grave with him. We came out the other side with him. We're now seated with him. I don't know if you know that reality. One day we're going to return with him. Jesus hacked his way, as it were, through sin, death, hell, and Satan, and he brought us all along with him. Listen, uh, Galatians 2.20, Paul would go so far as to say, I have been crucified with Christ. I was with him. I was with him on that. He, Ephesians 2.4-6, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up, past tense, with him, Seated us, past tense, with him in the heavenly places. What? I mean, in, in a very real way, we, went, we, we died with Christ, we went into the grave, we rose again with Christ, and we're now seated with him right now. That, that's how much of that reality is there. That's the, we call it the already, the not yet idea of this. We're not going to run because of the prize at the finish line, and not because so many saints who have gone before us are watching or cheering us on or give us a good example. And not because we feel better for giving it our all, but because of the vision of seeing Jesus who is there at the finish line. He's there. He finished the race for us. He completed the race for us. We're not accomplishing anything in our redemption by finishing this race, my friends. 
We run because the race is finished. I know it sounds a little bit, a little strange, but that's why we run, because it's been completed. It's been done. This means we are free to run without fear. We're free to run, with, free to run without, without fear of anything, for what can death and what can man do to me? That's what the psalmist says, right? I mean, Jesus says the joy was set before him. What was this joy that was set before him? What was it? Isaiah 53, telling us about the suffering of the Messiah, says this, Isaiah 53, 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, when he dies on the cross, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Do you see what he saw? He was only seeing the glory of the Father. It was one of the things that he longed for to go back. You can read John 17, be back with the Father, back in the presence of God at the finish line. But he saw something else. He saw the one thing he didn't have before he came down. He saw you. He saw me, right? A trophy of grace, as it were, that he would, as the Bible go on, he would give us as a gift to the Father, and the Father would give us back to the Son. And it's like we became part of this, like, divine gift exchange. Like, no, let them glorify you, Father. Like, no, they should glorify you, Son. And we're just being passed back and forth. So we read verse 3 here, Hebrews 12. It says, Consider him, speaking of Jesus, who endured from hostility, Endure from sinners such hostility against himself, that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In the struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding blood. So the writer just kind of just sums it up very pointedly here, very, very candidly. He just says, basically, guys, look, look at Jesus. Look what he's done for you. Make that keep, keep running because of what he's done. And at the same time, suck it up. <laughs> That's kind of what he says. I mean, he's like, he, he, see his exaltation in the midst of your great suffering and hostility and fight Fight with everything you've got. When he says you've not resisted to the point of shedding blood, he's like, you haven't been martyred yet. <laughs> you haven't shed blood yet. Keep going. Keep fighting. Nothing can get in our way anymore, right? I mean, everything Jesus did, there's no, all those things have been put away. He's put away sin. He's put away all of those things. It was the belief in the resurrection of Jesus and subsequently the guaranteed resurrection of ourselves as the people of God that caused people to give their lives and lay down their lives and endure suffering. That's what motivated them. It's what Jesus has done and the promise as a result of what they will get, being resurrected themselves, a future new earth. Look back at verse 35. I skipped this verse because I want to go back to it at the end. Hebrews eleven thirty-five. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. You see, some, it says earlier, got their sons back by resurrection. But if we, if we really understood that, that was really more like resuscitation, right? A delay in inevitable death. The terrible day was just put off. But Hebrews tells us here that one mother who, did, who, did, who didn't put her faith in the possibility of resuscitation, but in the sure hope of resurrection. She was sure that it was going to happen. You see, where did that story come from? This is, again, in that little time period in between um, the, the Malachi and Matthew. The story goes, goes back again to this Antiochus Epiphanes guy. Remember him? The Greek king came in, started killing everybody, doing all these horrible things. One of the things that he would do is he would call out families to reject God publicly. He'd bring them up, all family, father, mother, children, all come up. And if they didn't do it, he would torture them and kill them one by one. One of the stories goes that there was a woman, it was a mom, and she had seven sons. Every son was told, they were lined up, and they were all told to reject their faith, reject their faith in God. And if they didn't do it, he threatened them. He said that he would, uh, he would cut off their tongue, he would, uh, they would have their limbs cut off, it would be scalped and then roasted alive, burned alive. 
They need to deny their faith. Can you imagine? Imagine as a mom being there watching this. And, then, and so, and so the, the story goes that he goes one by one to each of these boys, and each of one of them, every single one of them, chose to keep their faith in God. Every one of them. Every, and one son, actually, in the story, uh, at one point stuck out his tongue and his arms and said, you know what? This is what he said. He said, take them. I got them from heaven, and for God's sake, I give them up. And from him, I'll get them back again. Take them. How did they have such faith? And here's the beautiful thing. Mom is standing there watching all this happen, and this is what she said. This is from, this is from a book uh, called Second Maccabees. This is part of that. This is where the story takes place. It says, She exhorted each of them in the language of their ancestors with these words, I do not know how you came to be in my womb. It was not I who gave you breath and life, nor was it I who arranged the elements you are made of. Therefore, since it is the creator of the universe who shaped the beginning of humankind and brought about the origin of everything, he, in his mercy, will give you back both breath and life. And so the mom stood there watching this happen, every one of her boys. And in essence, she was telling the boys, keep running. Keep going. You know what? We're going to get those eyes back. Keep going. We're going to get those arms back. It's worth it, right? Don't flinch. Run hard to the end. We're going to get this world back. And the reason these people all lived such great lives was not because they were such great people or they had uniquely gifted you know, people as they were. It was their belief in the resurrection that empowered them, the resurrection of, of the Messiah and the resurrection of themselves in the future as a result of their faith in him. You see, they weren't afraid of death because Jesus beat it down, right? And there was nothing anyone could do to them in essence. In essence, they, by faith, transform death in a way, right? When you understand faith in God and you trust Christ and you trust in the hope of the future, resurrection, you, you transform death in a way. It goes from an enemy to a, to a welcome friend in a way. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer put this, and I'll end with this. He says, how do we know that dying is so dreadful? Who knows whether in our human fear and anguish we are only shivering, shivering and shuddering at the most glorious heavenly blessed event in the world? Death is hell and night and cold if it is not transformed by our faith. But that is just what is so marvelous. We can transform death by faith and trusting in God. Death becomes now something like I'm now welcomed into the presence of God. Do you have, do you have that confidence today that when death comes, and it will come, my friends, I promise you, okay, for all of us, do you have confidence that you're able to stand and know that, you know what, I'm going right into the presence of God? Do you know that today? Are you confident you will rise again into the presence of Jesus? That's what we get here in Hebrews 11. That was the confidence and hope that they had that kept them moving. So as we, as we go to communion, if you're a Christian today, you're welcome to take part of this. There's bread, there's juice. Remember the body and, body and blood of Jesus. Listen to me. Stop packing up. I know we do this all the time. Stop packing up. As we go to this, I want you to reflect on, do you have that confidence? If you don't have that confidence, let us talk with you. Let us pray with you. Also, as, you go to as we go to communion, reflect on that very thing about the run. Remember? He talks about laying aside the weights. And so we, are there things that are hindering you? Are there things that are in your way? Maybe there's sins you need to cut off, but maybe there's things that are there's, there's weights. They're just weighing you down and keeping you from trusting and living the life of faith that God wants you to live. Evaluate that. Ask God to reveal if those things are there as we go to that. And I will give offerings as a result as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for this wonderful passage um, that God really speaks to our reality, that um, Lord, a lot of times faith doesn't, doesn't bring about a lot of rejoicing sometimes. It brings about a lot of suffering, a lot of hardship. 
a lot of questions. And yet, God, we love that we read this passage and the people, they trusted you no matter what the result was. God, would you help us evaluate today um, whether we have faith in you or whether we have faith in our agenda for you? God, let us lay down whatever it is that we've written up, whatever script we've got written for our life, whatever plans we have written up, God. May we lay them all down at your feet, submit everything to you, and, and, say, and say to you, God, do as you will with our life. Do whatever you want. Guide in whatever direction you want to guide us in. Turn us wherever you want us to go. God, grant us great faith to trust you. God, through times of great joy and through times of great hardship. God, help us and strengthen us as a church in that way. In Jesus' name, amen.